Mormonism, the annual tithing settlement is a chance to meet your local bishop and declare how much you've given back to the church. Emily was a full tither for decades, meaning someone who gave the expected 10% of their income. But when she was caught lying about her tithe in 2019, church leadership gently threatened to take away her temple recommend. To let you know what a big deal this was, the temple recommend is a document that allows members in good standing to participate in closed services. Baptisms for the dead, initiations, confirmations, etc. The bishop can choose to give you leeway on a case-by-case basis. A Redditor named Andy, for example, stopped paying his full tithe when his family fell on hard times. His bishop took away his temple recommend, which meant Andy couldn't bless the new baby or baptize his daughter. Emily, who was caught by the bishop, tried to explain she had instead given to other charities, cancer research last month, and to a children's hospital a few months before that. In the end, Emily was allowed to keep her temple recommend. On the condition, she would volunteer her spare time working in the church's thrift store to compensate for the church's loss of her income. That was also the experience of Eliza, who published her tithing rebellion on Business Insider. Eliza and her husband were making about 10 bucks an hour. Her husband, a military vet, was also working his way through school back before the GI Bill was amended in 2009. When the bishop asked why they weren't full tithers, Eliza claimed financial hardship. So the church gave them the same ultimatum. Volunteer in the church store to catch up on tithe or have the temple recommend revote. Jana Reese from Religion News also rebelled against the tithe. After the Washington Post published financial leaks including the church's massive stock portfolios, she didn't feel so bad about lying. LDS Church holds a hundred billion stock portfolio entirely built off the flock's tithing. 10% isn't just LDS tithe either. Across denominations, 10% seems to be the standard. Even the word tithe in Hebrew means 10% or one-tenth. Baked into the word itself is a standard which churches think we should give. But like all things, there are exceptions. If you're a traditional church, 10% is enough to build your nest egg over a course of several decades. But if you're Judith Smith from the Washington Megachurch, Kenneth Copeland from Eagle Mountain Megachurch, or Ed Young, the TV evangelist, you need to get creative. Like forcing your employees into compulsory 10%, taking private jets to collect tithe on seven different continents, or telling your megachurch, quote, If you can't tithe, don't come back. What if I discovered that 80% of you were pathological liars? I would talk about the tithe. 80% of you are robbing God. I got to ask you, (laughs) seriously. Why are you even coming to church if you're not bringing the tithe? Seriously, what, what, what are you expecting? 
or heaven forbid, producing a tithe rap like the New Hope West, who was worried not everyone got in the 10% message. But listen up now to what I gotta say. What I do every Friday when I get my pay. Before I buy the groceries or pay the rent. Oh, I gotta give God his food 10%. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet. The average taxpayer forfeits a little over 10% of their income. In return... We expect to have our roads rebuilt, schools kept up to date to educate our children, civil order, and protection from foreign invasion. To quote Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, taxes are the price we pay to live in a civilized society. In church, we also give 10% of our income. In return, the church does what? Local churches give back to neighborhoods by providing food for the needy or after-school programs for kids. But what do megachurches rebuild? Do they provide a service to the community outside of the sermon? What if you're not one of the faithful? Are they considered a public good? How do they earn their all-important tax-exempt status? That's our episode focused for today, and it comes with three little myths bearing three little gifts. Myth one, megachurch pastors give peace of mind to thousands. And you can't put a price on peace of mind, except we're definitely going to try. Myth two, canned food drives, bake sales, and car washes are the best tools for charitable church. But if you're sending $12,000 to a celebrity pastor on TV, how does the church allocate your money? Myth three, if megachurches are tax-free and offer peace of mind to any and all Americans then why are so many of them risking their 501c3 status to push a political message? Does God not listen to all parties equally? If a libertarian prays and nobody's around to hear it, does it make a sound? We're going to get to our myths. But first, I want to tell Joe about my experience working with megachurches. So we had a episode about um, the Mark Hill Church. So we've Mar- yeah Mars Hill show up in, in Seattle yeah Mars Hill thank you we've we've done episodes about church before on on slightly different levels and we've talked about ego and corruption but why why are we focusing on mega churches specifically today? Um, I have you know I grew up going to a small Presbyterian church. My mom has taught Sunday school for every week for forty eight years. So this is something I've been in, and as an adult, I've went decided to go away from the, I guess you'd say the, the hundred people um, churches to the mega churches. I just find the services and the sermons just so much more engaging. But you can't help but see what kind of a show it is, you know, Joe. <laughs> <The> circus. <laughs> it really does. And if I say anything like that at the mega church I go to now, of course I get all my my church friends get very offended. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't see what a dog and pony show this is sometimes. 
Well, I wonder, are those the friends that have been going to you know mega church for a long time? Um, most of them were like me. They grew up in a smaller church, and then when they got older and they start with their family, um, they they just find it more engaging. Okay, it's more it's very more attractive to um, to probably younger people. And I think church girls, younger church girls, are in their thirties and forties, right? Um, I think that because they make so many things for children, they make them, you know, with the daycare and the child services and the church camps. They they really are trying to attract the family people. Right. I, I kind of want to um, define what we mean by mega church before we get into this and also kind of separate like two buckets. We have your regular neighborhood church, which... You know, they have their tax exemption. My, my focus, by the way, yours will probably be moral. My focus is do churches deserve their tax exemption? That's like the bottom line for me. Um, but we have neighborhood churches who do canned food drives, who, you know, do outreach, who, you know, help the homeless. They have all of these things that they you've participated in. I've heard you talk about volunteering for these services. And on the other side is mega churches. And you get a whole different experience and a whole lot of different benefits from it by the community. Am I am I correct in saying that that is basically what our, our episode is about? Yeah, you're 100% dead on. And uh, I like the money approach that you have because, you know, money we can measure. I, you know, in the intro, we're talking about peace of mind. <laughs> yeah. People are only happy for, uh, I think happiness is temporary, right? It right. wears off. It's like motivation. It wears off. You got to keep reapplying. <laughs> and when we... When we talk small neighborhood churches, we absolutely do not mean small neighborhood celebrity tax shelter churches. Apparently, Mel Brooks and the Kardashians own these little, like, family-owned churches that only allow certain people to come. And they just use them because they are tax-free. And they, they kind of put money into them because they, they're exempt. <laughs> I have noticed it from my mega church volunteering that I noticed that smaller churches actually do more good things and the mega churches talk a lot about how much they do it's kind of like i, I kind of think of like those the monkey that's clasping those things together making all we do so much for the community but if you really start digging and looking for examples of it, it there's not a lot most of the activities are for the church to bring to the church so the people will give right so let's let's start by um coming to Jesus, I suppose. Um, I come from a uh, traditionally an Irish Catholic family. I myself am agnostic, but I want to reveal how much we tithed, and I want you to reveal how much you tithe, Todd, if you're willing. I'm in. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll start. When my family was going to church, I come from a, a very poor family. Um, most of my family would tithe basically whatever is in their wallet left over from their work week and the church if they were going to a church that knew them they would kind of like they, they would get a talking to like there were a couple of churches i remember where like they would pull my mother aside and be like you know you are tithing like like thank you for giving they would start with with being gracious they actually would they'd say thank you for giving um, you know, next time, if you can, if you can, if you can live a good life and, and get your finances straight, we would appreciate, you know, closer to 10%. Um, my grandmother on the other side of my family, she did not tithe. Instead, she would buy 
anything the church offered her. She had when she when she passed, she had hundreds of tiny church figurines. She had paintings like she had a Thomas Kincaid painting and like paintings by the local church. Um, she wanted something physical to show that she had been like, quote unquote, giving, even though a lot of times these went to individuals. That's crazy. I, I can't believe they would pull something aside. When I was married my first time and my 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 first wife was a devout Christian and read the Bible every day and there we'd give over 10%, but 10% was the bare minimum. And we belonged to multiple churches. We gave it multiple churches, but that wasn't my call. But that wasn't negotiable, Joe. It was there, there's no way it was going to go under 10%. Was way over that. And when you and she was ethnic, she was Korean, so she was part of a smaller church too and Tidings very important there because your money directly affects everything, you know, whether the boat sinks or not. So I think that it's not really a pressure from the government of the church or the pastors or the pastoral staff. I think it's social pressure from the other members of the church. And I and I know that there's status in it. So if you do have a high income and you do give more money, well, guess what? You get more say and you get more power. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. A, a vivid memory of mine is not somebody being pulled aside angrily and being told to tithe like our narrative opening. Uh, our narrative is about the LDS church. Um, there's, there's, Depending on your dom- denomination, you may get pulled aside by a bishop or deacon or something like that and warned to tithe more. What I remember most vividly is the church doing a fundraising and you know, if you were feeling the Holy Spirit and you were excited and, you, you know, the basket went around, you you pulled out money and everybody could see how much you pulled out because that basket is in full view. And and there was status in it. There there absolutely was. Well, I was going to a mega church in, uh, in Phoenix called Christ Church of the Valley. It's called CCV. And they have some really, really cool branding things I'm going to share with you. Um, the first one is at all their services... They'll, the very first thing they say at every of their services, this is our services are only one hour exactly, and they are to the second. Now, so what's the importance of this? Well, people want to know that. They want it short, compact. You know, No matter how good a speech is, a stand-up comedy is, a sermon is, aren't we glad when it's over, Joe? Aren't we ready to, you know? <laughs> we, we want to be short and sweet, and we want to be yeah. like, timed. And, and church can kind of drag on. So they make a point of that. Well, that's really made their membership flourish. They also have a neat thing where they put CCV on cars. They have these bumper stickers. And they're everywhere. And they even tell the members, they say, if you get in trouble in a neighborhood, go to a church, go to a door that has one of those. But it's spread like fire. It's almost um, clicky, culty, gangy. You know what I mean? <laughs> And they are so good at, at doing fundraisers. I, I remember one in, in general. They were t- they're building churches in Colombia, and um, it was a big deal. And they were they, they showed the pastors flying in on helicopters and meeting these people in the country. It was really over the top, you know. And I'll never forget what the guy said. The who, who was trying to get, you know raise money to pay for all this, you know. And of course, they're on helicopters and jets, and they're building churches in other countries. It's kind of weird, right? You know, I mean, we have a lot of work to do here, right? The guy said this, Joe, and this was really powerful. He says, listen, you don't have any money. I get it. Just give $5. Give $1. I want you to be part of this, and I want your family to be part of this. That was so powerful, them asking for so little. Everyone gave. They had two people that gave over $125,000 that morning. Two. Holy shit. 
Yeah. And and I emptied my bank account at the time. I didn't have $100,000, but I gave everything. Because they asked for so little, but I know it was, a, was some kind of psychological trick. <laughs> right. Like, if you watch, like, there's a, a John Oliver episode about mega churches and how corrupt they are. But when he shows examples of them, he shows the worst of the worst. He shows people, you know, like pastors on TV saying, you know, I just bought a private jet. Like, literally, he shows three clips of different pastors saying, I bought a private jet. Thank you for your donation. What you don't hear and what you don't see in that episode or what you don't hear in, like, you know, episodes, like, gotcha videos on YouTube about pastors, you don't hear the good, like, like the the um, the incredibly powerful message telling you to tithe. Like, like what you said, I want you to be part of this. That is so much more compelling. And, and it makes people who go to church not seem like they are dumb rubes, like like watching right. John Oliver. <laughs> well, that's, and I think, I think it's an actual way to buy yourself feeling like a better person. Because when I hand money into that, even if whatever I have, when I hand it into that little thing they pass through, or I put it in the envelope, I'm also, when I put it in the envelope, I'm hoping that nobody sees how little it is. I <laughs> I swear. Right. It's only 20 or $40. I'm embarrassed that I, I'm only put. Crinkle my bills so it looks like more. <laughs> like it, it's no, I really do, right? Stack, yeah. <laughs> so, so years ago, I was I was volunteer. You talked about volunteers. I've done. I worked at a food bank, um, and I did this two days a week. I did it for six years, and I didn't particularly enjoy it most of the time. And I was talking to one of the high school girls there one day, and and uh, be, and it's tough work with homeless people and and there'd be conflict with other volunteers and let's face it it's it's 10 hours out of your week every week you know and who's got that kind of time but i did it and i asked her this high school girl she's a valedictorian really smart kid and, and she was a good kid you know she's down there volunteering at the church with food bank her you know she'd been there since i'd been there almost since she was a little girl and i go why do we keep doing this to ourselves and she says we don't want to lose our position We've been volunteering so long, we've gotten promoted, we've gotten more responsibilities, and we don't want to lose that status, that power. This is a 17-year-old kid explaining this to me. And she was dead on. You have a sense of obligation that you need to give, that you need to be there. Of course, of course the show's going to go on without you, though, Joe. You know, they can right. replace the president in 30 minutes. What do you mean, the one food, back, food, food bank worker? Right, but that is... That is weirdly part of the helper's high. We've we've talked about that on other episodes. The idea that you know you helping you get status from it, like you you become yeah the 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 public and the the social group around you sees you doing that, and it gives you that status. My friend Brenda, she's a very successful real estate agent. She's um, I think it's with Country Insurance, and she's done this for for thirty years. So she has a huge book of business. Very successful and. One of the young pastors was talking to her about how their job is important doing God's work, right? And that it's the most important job in the world. And she stopped him, corrected him. This is a woman in her 60s. And she said, listen, you can't do any God's work without my money. I'm the one paying for all God's work. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? She's dead on. Because who's funding, who's paying for the gas, the this, the, you know. Right. It's Brenda with her, with her tithing. Did you, okay, have you been told by pastors ever that tithing is in the Bible? Yes. D did you ever figure out where in the Bible it is? No, I'm, I'm not. I haven't. I just take a word for it. 
Just same with me. I I, I don't want to be like, yes, I'm so smart. I knew this all along. No, I did not. Proverbs. Yeah, I don't know that. (laughs) Psalms or whatever. According to Billy Graham's website, it's 2 Corinthians 9, 6, 7. Supposedly says, uh, remember this, whoever sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously shall also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I've looked at that, and it nowhere in that phrase does it say tithe. No matter like where it, you, no matter if it's in Latin, Greek. Uh, <laughs> sows sparingly, <laughs> reaps sparingly, sows generously, reaps generously. Each man should give what his heart give, not reluctantly under compulsion. That A cheerful giver, that does not, it doesn't say give to the local mega church. It doesn't say tithe. It doesn't say who to give to. I assume, I mean, like a, a biblical scholar would slap me across the face and say, obviously it, it's talking about churches or, or tithing, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, I could loosely well, interpret that as a layman as it just means be generous as a person. Now we're going, now there's the 2000 members, mega churches. That's where the, those are the tiny ones. And those pastors make, I think, around two hundred thousand dollars plus. Okay, so they make, they make, I would say, CEO income for a nonprofit, right? I okay. think that's fair to say. And they're leaders; they're they're public speakers. But Joe and I are talking about the people that are absolutely in it—the prosperity preachers—and what their message is: is you give us your money. And you'll be successful, and you'll you'll your couple overrunneth. Is that, right. <laughs> you so you're giving to get, and they preach that, and they parade around town. One of my friends was on Benny Hinn's. He's a real tough Marine, and he was a security guy all his life. He was on Benny Hinn's uh, security team. Now Benny Hinn has ten full time security people. That's how many people want to kill this guy. Right? <laughs> but I, but I, but that's you know that's with being famous, right? And being yeah. a, a church thing. It's not just for him. What he told me is they used to go to the malls in um, Beverly Hills, to the malls and and the you know the the high end high end jewelry stores. They would close the store down when he came in because he would buy so much fur coats, jewelry. It's <laughs> like a Michael Jackson move. <laughs> it's exactly what it was, and he said it wasn't something that happened once a year. It happened weekly. <laughs> Anytime he went shopping, they would show. So that shows you what kind of money, what he was doing with all that tidy money. Well, it's it's funny you liken it to being a CEO because when we start looking at the mega churches, a mega church is defined as you said, uh, two thousand members or more. But when we look at who is attending these churches, more than half of all Americans who go to church now go to the largest ten percent of churches. So they really have like like congealed in the top ten percent. It it is like Walmart. I'm going to use that phrase from now on, basically, that these mega churches, the largest ones, have become the superstore of churches and that they have knocked out smaller churches from doing business. And they, they, I mean, if you think about half of all Americans, if you take 50% of all churchgoers and you go back to like the 1800s and you re-sprinkle them into smaller local churches, how much good would that do? Like, like if, if local churches give more, do more, volunteer more then you would redistribute that top 50% being crammed into mega churches. Um, and we'll, we'll get into whether or not they, they, you know, um, by their virtue and by their, 
you know, they're giving back how much mega churches actually do contribute back well, to I, America. I want to give you some some context here. My my grandmother, she's Catholic and she passed away, but she she was in her eighties and she works at she was volunteered at a small Catholic church in um, Grand Haven, Michigan. Only a hundred people members. Do you know what their tithing was every week, Joe? What's that? One hundred twenty-five members who consistent. They had a sixty-five thousand dollar a week tithing. <laughs> a week. Now, yeah, and Holy and I shit. was just I, I was just I don't know if you say horrified but shocked that you know Catholics are good at putting the finger on you know and saying hey you better give everybody. Uh, so. I, I'm just thinking. I'm doing the math as a small business owner. That church is paid for, right? And then they get sixty-five. I don't know what they do with all that. It goes to the Vatican, of course, most of it, and then gets distributed. But let's just say they're in a profitable pride, and they're not paying a cent on taxes on that. Hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some quick math for fun. Did you say 160 people? 128 people. Okay, 128 people. So. If we take 128 people, multiply by 6,000, because that's approximately, uh, if $60,000 is a, the the average annual income for an American, and then you take 10%, that's 6,000 times 128, it should be $786,000 per year. Like, they are busting way over that. Right. So they have a high earner who gives a lot, I'm guessing, right. or, or a few a couple, of them, yeah. a few of them. <laughs> Okay, a couple of tithing darlings, so we'll, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what are they buying? Like, like what are the, those in that Haven Church, when they, you know, tithe so darn much, what are they getting back for their money just as far as, like, peace of mind? We, we had in our myths um, the question, you can't put a price on peace of mind, except we're definitely going to try. So let's compare the feeling of going to a mega church versus a small church because that's when we talk the peace of mind you get, we actually want to compare what is the experience of a mega church, what is the experience of a mega church as seen through uh, college and scholarly studies, um, what is the experience of a local church, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna read you the studies and Todd, you jump in whenever you want and tell me how close this is because I myself have never been to a mega church, I've never walked through the doors of any any church larger than 500. All of my experiences are small Catholic churches in my youth. Um, so this comes from Washington University. Um, Wellman, Corcoran, and Stockley Meredith analyzed 470 interviews of about 16,000 surveys on megachurch members. And the word that came up over and over and over again, contagious. When asked to describe feelings, when asked to describe, you know, um, emotional experiences, uh, they use the word contagious quite often. They also use the words energized. They said they leave energized. One church member said, quote, the Holy Spirit goes through the crowd like a football team doing the wave. Never seen that in any other church. So that's, in a nutshell, that's what I could see from studies is... <clears throat> I'll tell you what, the the difference between, you know, I grew up in a Presbyterian church and and those churches now are trying to convert to the mega church, but they're about 20 years late. So what they, you know, and we're talking about the the standard churches where you wear the robes, you sing hymns, and now it's turned into this kind of rock concert-y, younger people playing guitars, um, instead of reading out of, uh, 
you know, singing out of the singing out of the hymn books, you're singing off of a big stage. A lot of these stages now are twenty, thirty thousand dollars, so they rival a low budget Rolling Stones show. <laughs> they they do, and and you know that I want to go back to the church, the mega church I went to, uh, the CCV Christ Church of the, and that church is in the the fifteen to twenty thousand, and they have multiple campuses. Um, they. I, I volunteered there, and, and they were talking about how they make their the appearance of their businesses to attract men because men are likely to bring more family members. They play sports on the on the screens like Buffalo Wild Wings in the lobby, <laughs> so they're very in tune to their aesthetics as a bit. And the you know the thing for an hour I think is very powerful. And you think, well, well, why would people care if they're gonna go to church? Why not? What's the difference? Hour, hour and a half. It makes a difference, and they're they're really, really marketing themselves well. They also do this thing. Once you start going there for a little bit, one of the pastors calls you and talks to you like they're an old spiritual friend of yours. Like it's very, you know, you wouldn't think they'd have time to do that, but they they really push the button on getting people through the doors and getting them getting them we called it plugged in which plugged in in means means making friends volunteering giving right you want that rock concert experience but then on the side when you have time have somebody give you a call and be like did you like the concert <laughs> yeah exactly right well they they when they talked to these people doing the surveys uh they they mentioned like i said they they had a lot of positive value words they said, um, quote, uh, Wellman said, that's what you see when you go into mega churches. It's people smiling. People are dancing in the aisles. Uh, they specifically mentioned that a lot of these mega churches, they're becoming sort of like almost non-denominational. Like right. a, a lot of them veer very far away from, uh, you know, the roots of individual churches. It, it does. It gets very motivationally. And that's the thing. You go to an older church, it's almost depressing. Yeah. But here it's like a party. It's like a really bad rock concert, a really boring rock concert, but it's still a rock concert, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of energy, enthusiasm. It's, it isn't that you're not there to feel bad. You're there to feel good, you know? That is so precisely it. So um, have you ever been to a, a Latin mass? Oh, never. never. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I have. It bores you to death. They talk the whole thing. I've been to a Catholic one. Yeah. It that, just goes that's exactly on right. and on. Yeah, they bringing bells and all this symbolism, and oh my goodness, it's just right. The the old system of church. Um, I, I had a graphic design teacher who used to tell us that you know the reason why churches are so large and there's so much symbolism and there is so much movement and slow sort of like if you look at a Catholic mass done in Latin, it almost flows like a slow trickle, like a river. And he's like, all of that is designed to make you feel smaller in the house of God. You are supposed to be reverent. But in a mega church, there is unalloyed joy is the way they described it in this study. It is supposed to be like a drug. If old church, old churches of their denomination are supposed to make you feel penitent and make you rethink your life, Mega churches are supposed to make you feel pretty awesome about being you. That's interesting. Um, the the I got to go back to CCV, and I've been to a bunch. I've been to the Mars yeah. Church up in Seattle, and I've been I go to a mega church now. The CCV one, and also the thing they did, they had an armed police guard inside and outside the church. That was a very power positive thing, and he was on you know not not off duty. He was on duty police officer that they hired 
one for inside and one for outside. I went to one of the smaller campuses, and I, and I remember I mentioned to one of the other churchgoers, one of the other volunteers, I said, I would like to go for Christmas to the main, um, to the main church, you know, the big show, right? He looked at me, Joe. He said, have you lost your mind? And I was like, I was like taken back. I go, what do you mean? He goes, do you know how busy it is there on Christmas Day? He goes, first of all, there's no way you'd be able to get a parking space. It's impossible. You have to go hours early. He says, their nativity scene, they bring in 10 live camels. Oh, my God. So I don't know what that cost, but that's how, he, he the way he said it, he bros, they bring in actors from all over the world. They have 10 live, live camels walking across the stage. So it's a million-dollar service. It's got to be. So and, who's, pay, who's paying for that? Compared to tiny plastic Jesus and a couple of sad <laughs> plastic camels at my church. Yeah. With a, yeah, with a projection little, like, what are those little <laughs> lights? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> they got full-on costumes sewed by stuff by hand. They also, so at this crazy. church, had their own uh, music studio, podcast studio. These are separate studios. And their own video studios that they could make real movies. So they would make um, Christian movies with the pastoral staff and show it to the kids. In full production, like they're Warner Brothers. Right. Yeah, when you talk about plugged in, hitting them with a local call, hitting them with, you know, visual, like video, uh, a concert, a podcast, like that is that is trying to keep you connected on every single level and entertained on every level. Um, do they ever reference heaven or hell or like sobriety or judgment in the services you've gone to with the megachurches? The megachurches are, are very forgiving. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about you're okay. There is very little guilt. There is a there is a high acceptance. Their acceptance of of um, they hold women in high standard. They hold uh, everyone um, equally as far as race. So, I'm sure there's some politics there, and I'm sure different churches you get different parts of the country. I'm thinking Southwest and Southeast. It might be a little bit different, but up okay. here it's a very tolerant atmosphere. It's not a ju- it's not a judgy. You're going to hell. You'll never. I promise you'll never hear that. <laughs> right. Only in your head. So let's let's kind of break down this into a a, a value, like a, a actual like number. Um, for the weekend, like if going to a concert every Sunday, having that charge up, having that sort of like energetic experience where it almost feels like you've taken a drug and done the wave at a, a football concert what would you put that as sort of like what would you pay for that if it wasn't a church if it had nothing to do with god you just went to a social group every week with a couple thousand or a hundred thousand people and everybody just, just had that energy i think of that like the gym people say oh the gym's 30 bucks a month they go it's a dollar a day you get that much entertainment out of it you know right <laughs> um to, to answer your question i to me Sixty dollars. Okay, that's that's a movie with my wife, right? And maybe some popcorn. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's Ticketmaster in the nineties. Like I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah, <laughs> it's not today's today's concerts would be oh, what five hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually I think that's about right. I think I think that number is is pretty close. Um, what I would think is is if you just take God out of it, just the entertainment, the energy, the the performative nature of it um so the the spectator worship let's let's talk a little bit about the value of that how much is the dollar value of 
Um, you go to a large crowd. All the attendees participate. Um, the congregation is basically a feature, but you don't do as much interaction. Like when you're when you're at a mega church, do you turn to the people in the stands next to you and like connect with them? Like is it is it like a local church where you you know you you have those quiet moments before the service and you're just sort of chatting with the people next to you and trying to get get to know them? Yeah, there's the, the beginning of every service. It's like just just turn to your to your neighbor and say good morning. See how they are, and then next thing you know, it's just a big love fest. Everyone's hugging, and, and then finally the pastor has to get everyone to settle down because we're all we won't stop talking to each other, and we're right. climbing over. Yeah, it's very lovey dovey. I mean, it's very warm. It is. Okay. Yeah, I know you'd be so. I'd love to see you do it. You probably get so uncomfortable. I could just I could see you crawling in your skin right now. All these strangers coming up to you, touching you and stuff. <laughs> no, I I you might I, mean, just I would attend church in my youth i would just quietly sit there like i would i would go to the pews i would sit down if people came to me i i wouldn't stand up or move it i was very awkward um they even have professional prayers like if you're going through something they'll they'll like um, especially every service at the end of service they welcome people up who are going through some kind of crisis or anything and they bring in like these 30 like you know uh, church elder looking people and they'll go and put their hands on you and pray for you and so it's a very powerful emotionally you know surrender and support of what you're going through you know they'll cry with you and then they'll drag you backstage i never know what happens to those people they take backstage and never ever see them again but that's a champagne room beat <laughs> <laughs> the shit out of them or something <laughs> i want to be there for the casting call for that i would love to be like i, I want to be like sleazy Hollywood stuff where they like bring in a bunch of elderly people and they're like, no, you don't look compassionate enough. Give me compassion. Give me, give me, <laughs> give me yeah, give me surrender. You'll never work in this town again if you can't sell this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kid with cancer. Come on, go. <laughs> Somebody's like, I work at Walmart as a greeter right now. I would love, I need this job. And <laughs> Okay, so if you go to a large church, you get all of these benefits we're talking about. And, and Todd has 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 put his figure at about sixty bucks a week. Um, if you go to a smaller church, so so the positive, and and these are studies that have basically been proven out. Regular church attendance is linked with living um, a few years longer. Um, attendance reduces anxiety, and for sure, like I, I tried to disprove this uh, as a agnostic and and a you know relatively a man of science. I tried to, you know, triple and double check to to go through as many college studies as I could in the amount of time I was writing this. Um, so it for sure reduces depression rates in children who are 13 to 18 years old. Um, most of these studies, here's the big caveat. Most of these studies point to active community involvement as the biggest benefit, not necessarily the word of God or the religious high that comes from being in a megachurch. It is the interaction. When when Todd and I are joking about them calling you on the phone afterward, being dragged back, you know, to be individually prayed with, it, it really is the social aspect of it that brings you the absolute most benefit. It, it's not the concert high. It's the uh, feeling connected. Well, I just had this happen with my wife, and she, she goes to church with me, but um, she just, I, just, what you just said happened. She went there, and one of our neighbors is uh, very educated, works at Intel, uh, PhD, 
and someone that my wife admires because of her education or intelligence. And she goes to our church and we started walking with her to church and she started taking notes. And then I noticed my wife saw that and said, "Why, you know, why do you take notes? And she said, well, for me, it helps me stay focused. So my wife starts taking notes. Well, I've noticed. And then um, this woman has introduced her to somebody because she's a little more plugged into the church. I just like fire, just like a match. My wife wants to get plugged in and get involved. And I know, and I know it's not based on God. It's based on the community and the people, how she feels. And I, and to me too, I want to I want to spend time with these people. I want to help out. I want to be in their friend group. Is what it says to me. Right. I think that is, if we are sifting through, we're we're going to get into a lot of the uh, icky, gross, strange, you know, money grubbing things that churches do. But if you want to boil it down to what is the best benefit, your wife is getting it. It is um, plugging in, getting social, getting involved, becoming part of the community. All of that has you know pro-social benefits, reduced depression. Like we said, you live longer. Um, and if we want to just absolutely boil it down to the money, like the, the, the absolute bottom line of is it worth it? Um, if you look at the cost of psychotherapy in the U.S., it's 100 dollars to two hundred dollars per session per week the average cost of a tithe in the u.s is 17 to 200 dollars per week that is what is reported by most churches um that's quite uh, a bit yeah so like it's almost the same like if if you take that middle you know 17 to 200 dollars a week for tithe 100 to 200 dollars a week per session of therapy you're kind of around the same ballpark honestly you know they set it up like direct deposit too. Do you know that, right? I did not know that. <laughs> so they set it up, you know, that they'll have like a meeting and then they set it, they get your bank account information. They've got a lot of different ways you can pay by Venmo and PayPal, but they'll they'll do a thing just like a gym membership where we'll figure out your tithing and it'll come out weekly. So of course what weekly is better than monthly bills, right? Or daily yeah. anything anything you know as Americans are. It doesn't sound like so much. But it's similar to gyms where they put you on a schedule. You pay, first of all, your attendance goes up, and then you pay more regularly, right, when it's already coming out of your bank account. Right. And, if it's automatic, you have to cancel it to make it stop. That and Isn't that kind of hard to do with church, too? It's a little harder than cancel the gym. Right. Yeah, No. nobody gets – God doesn't get mad at me at the gym if I cancel that. It's just a, a big dude named Kevin who really wants me to eat better. But, like, yeah, you, you cancel – the, the house of the Lord, that's that's different. Um, so, okay, let's talk. We got the money, success rates. Cognitive behavioral therapy, if you pay for that, is a one-on-one session, has a 50% to 75% chance in treating depression. We don't know the exact percentages of attending church on reducing depression. It is lower than that, but it is consistent and it is across the board, especially when you are young. The youth get the most uh, benefit as far as depression and anxiety go from attending church. After 18, I don't know what happens. Maybe people start questioning everything. Um, but a- again, a mega church is a one on 2000 session for the actual event. And then the rest of it is how much you plug in. And a local church statistically is a one on 50 session where the pastor and, you know, speaks to 50 of you and, if you participate in the community, like, like can't stress that enough. The if part, if you just go in and sit like I do and you don't talk to anyone like I do, 
then you will get as many benefits as I did, which is zero. Um, so you, you really have to become pro-social. Now I want to talk about volunteering at a, at a, back, at a big mega church because that, the volunteerism, it is contagious. It, you do build status. I started doing it because I was single and I just felt uncomfortable at church sitting by myself. I was just kind of lonely. And I didn't know anybody, and you feel kind of like an outcast, right? Because you are, you know, especially a single person in church. Um, but once you start volunteering, I, I, I was doing the security work, and I was, I was in charge of doing the background checks. This is very interesting, Joe. So I did all the background checks for the volunteers because we need to know if they've had, you know, sexual problems in the past or kids stuff, whatever, right? Right. But this is the problem, Joe. It's church. You have to forgive. So we would get people with some pretty sketchy backgrounds, but we can't say no, they can't volunteer. We just have to keep an eye on them. <laughs> That's hey. what the background check does? Like you, yeah. you're just checking to see who you need to watch closer? Well, yeah, because you can't say no, you can't volunteer because you have a felony for this, da, da, da. but we would keep Daryl away from the kids if it's a thing about kids and, you know. So we were just aware of those things. When I volunteered at the CCV, they asked me 20, they had a, that had an actual thing that you filled out. They had a personality test you took, almost like FBI, but a lot of the questions were based on your sexual history when you were a kid if you had been molested. They ask you like 20 different times. So they're very aware of keeping an eye on any kind of sexual predator. I just thought that was crazy that they, you know, they do background checks, but that they still have to take everybody. Right. That's also crazy that they are self-aware enough in the dangers of you know like like what churches have faced and like the kind of predation that's happened at churches where they would have so many screenings for that like that that makes sense but i don't know why i assumed that churches are like blindly going forward with the word of god like like they they wouldn't have their own sort of like lens on that now another thing that you talked about people kind of buying into the hype a little too much some people can't see the difference between God and the show in these mega churches. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. I, you know, Joe and I have written very, very, a lot of sermons. A lot of, well, we've written a lot of speeches. We've never written sermons, but we've written a lot of speeches. And I was talking to one of the other volunteers about um, the pastor's sermon. He's a really great, great speaker. And I said, wow, he does great structure and this and that and da, da, da. And she goes, no, he doesn't do any of that. She goes, the Holy Spirit writes his sermons. <laughs> she was dead serious. This is a woman with a bachelor's degree who works as an accountant. You know what I mean? And I thought, I thought she was joking. Of course there's structure. Of course they write speeches. There's outlines online. You know what I mean? And I just thought, she goes, no, the, you know, God writes them for him, and it just speaks through him. And I was like, okay. Has she never spoken to a religious scholar? Like, they're better at storytelling than I am, and I I specialize in structure. Like, I yeah, but it, yeah, but but they work on it, right? They've been doing it all their lives, you know. Right <laughs> from the Bible, they take. I mean, it's but but, and I don't think that she's the minority. I think she's the majority. They don't connect. They don't. Dis, they don't do the show. And God, right? Sorry to do this again, but I'll talk Joseph Campbell again. Uh, famed story. Um, uh, professor and like psychologist Joseph Campbell talked about how most religions share a very similar story because it is so well structured like it is built to tell the heroic story of you and also the god figure that is you know that everyone's going to pray to like you have a, you have a built in guide right 
Right, exactly. Like, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've spoken to religious scholars, and they know more about story structure than I do. Like, they are generally better at public speaking and, and building a story uh, than, than most of the professional storytellers in writing. <laughs> and I think if you put them up against some of the best motivational speakers, I think the these men, you know, Joel Osteen's uh, are very encouraging and inspirational. Oh, absolutely. I think, he, I think he would rival any of those. I, th- this whole show started, I didn't tell you, I told him we were talking about Joel Osteen and the big mega church in Houston. And I said, why don't you Google his car? And it was this ridiculous Ferrari that, <laughs> <laughs> that looks like a rapper would drive. <laughs> right? Joe was like, what? There, that's where I started going down the slippery slope of what do mega pastors do with their tithe? Because like I saw his car and then I started seeing private jet, private jet, private jet, not Joel Osteen, but like it almost seems like these pastors, they will literally trade private jets to each other like they're trading cards, like the, the mega pastors. It's, it's so insane. Without the airplane that we have that I bought from Tyler Perry, and I didn't pay anywhere. And Tyler's one of the greatest guys. He made it. He made that airplane so cheap for me. I couldn't help but buy it. Well, my question then. Well, well okay, all right. But I want to get to the demons because people are very concerned about that comment. Give me a chance here, Inside Edition. I love your eyes.